Sagar and Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. I think Silicon Valley is very good at the micro. Washington's very good at the macro. So your point, like, is it a solution to have a shadow capital that's solving all of the problems because the actual government doesn't like to solve problems? No, that, that is not a, like, that's not a long-term solution. But what I think is like the people who go to Washington are very good at macro 30 year, like, let's think of, of you know, big picture ideas. The people who go to Silicon Valley, a lot of them like have big, big picture thinking, but it's like, it is a day, it's like an hour by hour grind. It's like, you've got to solve this tiny, tiny problem on day one. And then on day five, it's like, okay, there's another problem. How do we set up these systems? And it's like, it's such a micro way of thinking, but it's just two different types of personalities. And I think that you need both. You need the people who are sort of seeing the the 30,000 foot view in Washington and saying, actually, like, maybe we can solve part of the education crisis with one of these companies, but there's this whole other thing that's going to happen in 10 years. And we need to talk about that now. We have an amazing guest for all of you, Catherine Boyle. She is an investor at General Catalyst, located in the great city of Miami, which we're certainly going to get into why exactly she's in Miami. We had a really excellent conversation. Catherine is a very interesting person. She used to work at the Washington Post, lived in Washington, D.C., went to Stanford Business School, and now works in Silicon Valley. So she tries to kind of bridge the gap between what public investments look like, be it the aerospace and defense sector, civic technology, and more. We have an awesome conversation just focusing around what what is the problem with America? If you were to think about it from an investor perspective, every time you pitch somebody in Silicon Valley, you have to define a problem. What's the problem? What's the problem with this country? Obviously, that's something we're trying to figure out here. So she was a great person to discuss it with. Yeah, this was great because this is obviously airing going into the 4th of July weekend. So having an episode about America from a slightly different perspective, aka that of a ambitious investor was great. This really picks up on what we discussed with Professor Zowitzer last episode. Why is it that people aren't drawn to public service the way they used to be? Professor Zowitzer is obviously coming as an educator, but Catherine's coming as a former Washingtonian who invests in companies that are in that civic space, whether they're in the defense sector, space, education, infrastructure, all of that. So many great things to hear here. Would love to hear your thoughts because she's bringing a perspective that a lot of you probably have not heard much before. So you all know the deal. We have a Substack. We have mugs, a lot of great things to do. Catherine doesn't have a book, but you can go check out her Substack herself, which we'll link in the show notes. And you could also go to our bookshop where you could purchase books and support independent booksellers. Now, we don't have a Q&A this week because we have a special, really exciting announcement. We are going to host the Realignment's first ever conference in Miami on Friday, October 22nd, 2021. Now, we're going to air everything from the conference on YouTube, on this podcast channel, but we actually have a bit of space to have people actually attend in person. We would love to meet those of you who can make it. There are only, due to space constraints, 75 spaces available, some of which have already been allocated, but we actually are going to include a link that you can actually apply to attend. There's no cost here. Um, since we're going to be in Miami, we maybe we may actually put together some type of meetup if you're also around there too. So that'd be really fun, but lots of really great stuff. Go check the Substack, check the show notes for details. We'd love to meet whoever we can meet. And like we said, Catherine will be speaking around this same topic herself. And I'm sure you all have plenty of questions after this episode. And once again, this conference and this podcast are co-sponsored with the Lincoln Network. We really appreciate their support. Let's dive into the episode. 
Catherine Boyle. Welcome to The Realignment. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Good to see you, Catherine. Good to see you. A great way to explain your job as a venture capitalist and your context and interest in technology and civics and DC is to say that if we were to pitch you a company, we would create a slide deck. The deck would contain a slide that said problem. What's the problem this startup is trying to solve? If you're looking at America, DC, the spaces that you invest in, how would you define or articulate the problem, quote unquote? Because obviously we're taping this going into the 4th of July weekend. Yeah, yeah. So it one of the things, so I, I became a venture capitalist five years ago. I spent a long time in Washington. I was formerly a Washington uh, Post reporter. So, so a lot of my background comes from understanding policy, understanding big problems that are affecting America. And so when I, when I came to Silicon Valley, the big question for me is, why aren't there more companies solving problems for America? Uh, and I think what's happened since I since I've been uh, in the valley, since I've been in investing, is that that's actually one of the focal points now of what's happening in technology. Um, so recently, we announced that that we're, we're launching what we're calling a civic vertical, um, which is investing in companies that are solving deep problems in America, um, from aerospace and defense, which has you know historically been solved by technology companies, but everything from transportation, education, infrastructure, public safety. What I think is most interesting right now is that a lot of the problems that governments are are struggling to solve, both in America and across the world, uh, are being solved by technology companies. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, part of it is that venture capital is actually a very efficient asset class. Um, since the 70s, since the arrival of venture capitalists, there's been a, you know, a software revolution, uh, and it's never been easier, I would say, to build a company. Now, it's always hard to build a company, but it's never been easier to get the capital, to get the talent, uh, to, 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 you, to put tools together and build something that's solving a specific problem for a policy reason. Um, so that's one reason that I think uh, technology has become much better at solving a lot of these acute problems that, that are really affecting uh, like policy problems. Another reason that I think is actually deeper, and it's something that the federal government has talked about for a long time, is this public service crisis that we've had since the 80s and 90s. Uh, if you look at sort of what's happened with the financialization of the economy, uh, people who used to go into government, used to serve their country, used to become bureaucrats, are now going to McKinsey, Goldman Sachs. And then that changed a couple of decades ago. People started going into technology. And so when you look at where the talent is going after they leave university, uh, it, it's going to places other than the public sector. And that makes it very, very difficult for government to, to solve the problems internally versus outsourcing them to technology companies. So I know we'll, we'll dive deeper into this, but that's the high level thesis of why we're, we're really excited to be investing in companies that are solving acute problems that, that were historically solved by policy. Yeah, this has been happening for 30 years. I think it's probably the biggest problem that the entire public sector, the journalism class, everybody faces in terms of how we think about elites, where people who are coming up and kind of going into the higher strata of jobs, like where they go actually determines a lot of the future. So to that point, um, in terms of the distribution of power in the United States, this is a fun conversation that we get to have with Silicon Valley people, and especially people who have a very bullish uh, case on tech, is the idea around like where the center of gravity of power lies. And I know that you have a really interesting thesis around around banana republics and shadow capital. So let's go lay out kind of where your thesis is and then apply it to the American context. Like the, you know, how how they interact with each other, what it actually means to have a banana republic, a shadow capital, and then put it in the American story. Certainly. So so when when you think about 
what a banana republic is, like the, the history of, of banana republics. United Fruit existed as a American company that was operating in much of Central America at the turn of the century and became more powerful than the weak governments in Central America. So that would be, I'd say, the, the historical example. There's you know, often historical examples of companies that have more power. Um, if you're looking at industrialization, you would say that, that you know, a lot of, of, of companies actually had more power uh, than, say, a weak federal government. What I think has happened with technology that is a little bit different when we're talking about shadow, company, or shadow capitals, uh, which operate in various you know, places outside of where the historic government would operate. Uh, what I think has happened is that it's never been easier for a small group of people to take over one area of policy and have more power than those policymakers. Uh, a good example of this, and I think this, this was probably one of the most high profile examples that we saw a few years ago, was when Google was, was working actively on the project uh, Maven contract for the DOD. Right. Um, when, when Google, when a number of Google employees, not even Google executives, and I think this is what's really interesting, when a number of Google engineers said that they were uncomfortable working with the Department of Defense, Google pulled out of that contract. And so what I think has happened in terms of Silicon Valley being a historic shadow capital is that not only are, are people able to build companies that rival government very quickly because of this issue of, uh, you know, capital's never been easier to amalgamate, talent's never been easier to amalgamate, but the actual people who are working in the companies have more power, sometimes than even the executives, by saying we're not going to work on a contract or we're not going to um, you know, go in a certain direction in a company. And so that's what I think is really interesting about this American context of a technology shadow capital, is that the shadow capital arose very quickly. You know, it took it took United Fruit, uh, you know, the better part of half a century in order to become powerful in 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 uh, Central America. And of course, that was a very weak government. I would say the United States federal government is actually a very strong government. And yet in certain areas of policy, you could actually make the argument that Silicon Valley has more power or, or is able to, to, to wield great influence in terms of how it's operating. Yeah. I want to have you help us think through what excites us about what you're saying and what's also a bit of a bummer, to put it really uh, colloquially, because what excites me is Sagar and I are always frustrated by how polarized DC is and how nothing works. There's a reason why we're podcasting right now and not trying to work on the Hill or anything. At the same time, though, you can see the energy in broader Silicon Valley around everything from defense tech to public infrastructure, but also say, hey, I'm a little uncomfortable that public issues are no longer capable of getting adjudicated in a way that the public has direct input over, because obviously you're right, SV is a washing capital, but that's capital that's coming from specific limited partners. There are specific firms like yourselves. So how do you just think about the wishy-washiness of this? Because the last thing I was add to this is I always get frustrated when people like Anand Gadir Gadaras basically say, it's terrible that all these private actors are trying to solve these public problems and that's the failure, but that doesn't recognize that the public actually can't do anything. So yeah. I get both sides of it. So how do you think about that? So I think there's a huge difference between startups and big tech. Uh, and, and I work with startups. Uh, and, and even the, the way you think about like the types of people who start startups, it, it's interesting. I, I was reflecting on this for, for a while and I still can't find a good answer for it. But we used to call founders entrepreneurs. And then something shifted in Silicon Valley and now we call them founders. And I think that's a much more American term for what people are doing in Silicon Valley. 
They are upset with the status quo. They are rebels. They are mavericks. They are people who say there's a huge problem and I need to solve it. And oftentimes people are laughing at them. They're persecuting them. I mean, they're sort of like the original founders in many ways. And I think it's interesting that we've moved from using the you know entrepreneur term to no, this is an American like ideal of people coming to a place you know in the middle of nowhere. Uh, it, it, you know, Silicon Valley used to be in the middle of nowhere, coming to a place and building. Uh, and trying to solve unique problems. So I think there's a difference between that startup energy and then I think what happens when you become a trillion dollar company. Um, and, and I think that's the, the disconnect in Washington is there's a lot of people who hate on you know, the, the big tech companies, um, but I think the, the entrepreneurial aspect of what's happening, particularly with this generation of founder is they grew up watching, you know, they grew up at, I grew up watching wars happen. Uh, you know, I grew up watching people go to war with without the, the tools and the technology they needed to actually fight. And so you see a number of defense contracting companies coming up through Silicon Valley, defense tech companies, uh, wanting to solve the problem that they that they grew up with. Um, and so I think those are sort of the, the types of people where it's they are upset with what government wasn't able to provide. They're upset with, you know, they're coming of age in the Great Recession. Uh, so they're upset with with a lot of the, the features and aspects of what happened in life. And now they're trying to build for a new society. It's very different than 50 year old tech companies or even 70 year old tech companies. If you're talking about the defense contracting crimes that have been around since World War Two. So I think there's a huge difference between big company culture uh, and, and tech you know, startup culture, uh, which is really this sort of, you know, people who used to go into government and say, I want to work on Capitol Hill and solve these problems are now saying, you know what, I'm going to get a bunch of my friends together and we're going to think about how to best solve this problem in five years, not 50. Uh, and we're and we're going to do it for, for most of America. And so I think then something often shifts, like when you become a massive company, when you become a massive public company, there's sort of rules and regulations that are put in, um, you know, different types of, you know, kind of messaging happens. Uh, there's more people, it becomes much more of a, what I would call like a management challenge. But the early stage startups that are really pushing through trying to build something new, uh, that's a very different ethos than I think what Washington is harping on when it's talking about, you know, Google, which is now a legacy company. That's so interesting. I want to double click on your point about defense contractors and growing up during wars, because I hear what you're saying and I instantly think of the Iraq war where you had a humongous bloated defense department, U.S. military going to Iraq. There was this big revolution in military affairs, post-Cold War, everything should go handy dandy, totally separate from the question of weapons of mass destruction. But you then had a lack of basic body, body armor. You had Iranian Revolutionary Guard forces and insurgents building really cheap IEDs that were capable of destroying really expensive military technology like Humvees, so then you had MRAPs come in. So just how do you think about, as someone who invests in the defense space, those really formative periods during the 2000s going to the 2010s as we're wrapping up in Afghanistan, how that really shapes the space and how it's going to shape it moving forward? Yeah, I mean, th this is this is really personal. So I, I have a, a, a friend who's an investor, but also served uh, served in Iraq. And he was saying uh, when I asked him once, I said, what's the best technology company that actually helped you when you were on the ground? And he said, Amazon. He said, we would we would buy like basic antenna off Amazon because some of the things that we could buy off Amazon like and have just shipped to us by our friends and family were actually more effective than what was issued to us by the government. So to me, this is a symptom of a 30 year problem, which, as you said, coming out of the Cold War, things were supposed to be hunky dory. Uh, you know, we were supposed to be uh, the, you know, a hegemonic, you know, like the hegemonic power. And instead, what happened was I actually think it was an issue of business bloat that led us to having five 
prime contractors that all consolidated in 30 years. When you think about like Martin Marietta, you know, uh, combining with the Lockheed Corporation, you know, that was in the 90s, there was just this anticipation that, you know, that all of the budgets would be cut. Uh, something like 20,000 companies left the industry over two decades and ultimately through mergers are actually dying. And it just became this five prime system. Uh, and no one really anticipated the rise of Russia and China, which are very good technology, you know, places, places where technology is built by the best engineers for the state. And I think the biggest difference between our near peer adversaries like Russia and China is that their governments can tell the best engineers in the country, you have to work on these technology issues. And in the US, we sent all of them to Facebook to work on ad tech. Like we sent all of them, like, like build whatever you want. And what we have a problem with right now, particularly in the defense industry, is that the best engineers, the best and the brightest are not going to the five contractors. They're going into Silicon Valley and they're not necessarily working on these issues. So I think one of the things that's really exciting um, is to watch companies like Anduril, like Shield AI, companies coming out of Silicon Valley that are saying, we need to build technology products that rival what we have in the consumer sector. Like our men and women in uniform should not be going on Amazon to solve their problems. They need to be issued the best technology products so that they can do their job. And the people who can build those best technology products in the way that Silicon Valley builds very quickly, very efficiently with venture capital, they're in Silicon Valley or they're in places like Orange County that are funded by investors. So what I think is happening is this amazing business shift where the way that we funded consumer technology companies that, that we all use every day is now funding defense technology companies so that our men and women uniform can get the best products that they need. Because that's how China is funding things. And that's how Russia is funding things. No argument here. Let's talk a little bit about this. So a lot of people who listen to the show are deeply skeptical of the military industrial complex. And a cynical person might say, well, oh, you know, I 100% with you in the critiques but are you saying you just want to become the next military industrial complex? Because kind of where I look at it is that I am, and I, look, I am all for a total revolution in military technology. But at the end of the day, you still have to do business with the government. And doing business with the government is what the primes are so good at. You yeah. kind of saw a little bit of this with SpaceX and Elon's dealing with the government in terms of you can build like this awesome tech company, but NASA is going to make you uh, jump through five billion hoops and you have to hire all of these lawyers in order to remain in compliance, in order to go through the bid process, in order to move it through Congress and all of that. And that's just a whole other game that it just seems to me inherent to doing business in the defense sector is it's going to get dirty and it's going to get dirty real quickly. So I'd love to hear what you think about that. Yeah. So, I mean, the, I think Elon is a very good example. It takes someone with, you know, incredible strength and just incredible perseverance in order to get through, uh, this government contracting process. What I think excites investors in Silicon Valley right now is there are multiple examples of companies that have scaled selling direct to government. So it's Palantir, it's SpaceX. And those people, and this is kind of what happens in Silicon Valley is like you have, uh, you know, you work at a company for five, six years, you help grow the company, you build it. And going back to this point of there's a difference between startups and big company people, a lot of those people who are the revolutionaries and the people who are early startup employees they want to build something again. And so that's the case with Andro, which, you know, this was a team that came out of Palantir. People know the playbook. They know, you know, it's hard to work with government. I think it is very difficult for a young person out of college that knows nothing to come to Silicon Valley and say, I'm going to build and sell to government. 
that person's going to have a hard time competing against Lockheed Martin. But Elon now has, has built a company where so many people know this is how you have to build a space company. This is how you have to work with the federal government. These are the regulatory requirements. And so what I'm excited about is this talent issue of there used to be a dearth of talent that even knew that Washington existed. Now there are so many engineers, very patriotic engineers that have spent a few years at some of these companies. They know the pace that it takes to work at these companies. And it is not like a nine to five pace. I mean, working at SpaceX is you are going to work seven days a week because we have to get to Mars. It is a serious mission. And it, it is this sort of, you know, live or die sort of mission. And I think those are the sorts of people that you want supporting the federal government and its most essential needs. So. Yes, I think, you know, like the the question I think you had in the beginning of, Mm -hmm. you know, do these companies ultimately just become new contractors? I think they have separate missions. And I think one of the things that makes Silicon Valley and these these tech companies so unique is that this ethos of better, faster, cheaper is a real ethos. Like people want to build products that they can sell to the government cheaper. They want to build them faster. So it's like, it's not like it's going to take three years and it's going to take, oh, endless budget cycles in order to get something done. It's, we have a prototype on a Monday and, you know, on Friday we have the thing flying like that. That is the speed at which tech in, you know, in Orange County, which is where a lot of this is being built, but, but, but what we would call like Silicon Valley tech and that ethos of building, uh, that's the speed at which people operate. And I think that's, that's what uh, the government deserves. How do you build that into a company? And for you as an investor, for you as a venture capitalist, because look, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, all these guys, at one point in time, they built SR-71. They took us to the moon. They were some of the most revolutionary tech companies of their time. But then they had a monopoly on the space, largely through regulatory capture, which, Mm -hmm. you know, all turned, basically culminated in the F-35 project where everybody was like, okay, enough. Um, And we can agree on that. And yet we still don't really have competitors. How do you make sure when you're looking at your companies, if you want to future proof them, that if somebody were to go back in time, if I was head of Lockheed, I'd be like the worst thing we could turn into is what we did in the year 2021. How do you stave that off, so to speak? So one of the things I think is interesting, if you just look at how these companies have become so massive is they're not becoming massive because they're building new products and selling. They're doing a lot of roll-ups. So this whole going back to you know how many thousands of companies were rolled up into these big five contractors over the last 20 years, you can you can build or you can buy. And there was really no research and development. It was okay, like we're just gonna keep rolling up contracts. And it wasn't rolling up necessarily like cutting edge technology. It's like, let's roll up anything that has a contract. And mm-hmm. it, to your point, it's like we're really good at selling into the government. So it's like they had a monopoly on the sales, not necessarily a monopoly on the best tech. And that I think is the big problem. So if, if I could go back in time and sort of predict what was happening, it would be, you know, we actually need competition. Competition, I mean, this is like the, the this is, you know, the, the thing that I think a lot of people in, in, in government understand, which is that competition breeds a, a best in class product and not these sort of bake-offs where it's, oh, we're gonna, you know, compete all these little companies and then ultimately give it to Raytheon or ultimately give it to Lockheed Martin, but like actual competition where if you are a company that can get together, you know, terrific men and women engineers and build something really fast that works, we are going to give you a contract. And that just does, that until very recently, I would say that just did not happen with the DOD. It was, you know, we're always, you know, you never get, what is the old saying? Like you never get fired for IBM. It was the same thing. You never get fired for Lockheed. Like you're going to have your job if you if you go with the the people who've been around for a hundred years, and so I think that is the the kind of I, I would call a business mistake 
it's not a tech mistake. It's not a policy mistake. It's sort of a business mistake that a lot of the, the kind of DOD procurement process has encouraged for, for the last 20, 30 years. And it's something that when we look at our rivals, when we look at our you know, near peer adversaries, they just do not have that problem because they can tell the best talent you have to build X. So, mm-hmm. so I think that is, that's the, the core thing that, that I, people were predicting, uh, but that happened and that, that hopefully can be changed. I want to take a step back and go to the history because something I really appreciate about your writing on Substack is you'll bring a really strong historical context into what you're discussing. What do you think is really happening 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s? This is less of an issue now because knock on wood, we're a bit further past COVID. But when you're going back to April of last year and there's huge issues with production, there's all these issues, government, state, local, federal feels really lethargic. You go back and you you see what Cold War, World War II era government and private business in concert were able to accomplish. And it's incredible. It's, it's, it's absolutely incredible what we're able to do. So bringing together your point about financialization, bringing together your point about in the 60s and 70s, folks stop going that direction. Just what do you think is the overall big narrative let's put on your old journalism hat what 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 is going on there because this just this keeps coming up no matter what context we're discussing so we're discussing defense tech and venture capital here but this came up when we were talking about polarization in congress last week just something happened and i'm yeah. curious what your perspective is on that so i mean I, I i think there's a lot of theories that something happened in the 70s to your point like what what shifted uh, in american culture um, and, you know, I, I think financialization is part of it, uh, where, you know, the best talent did get kind of pulled from doing this public service initiative. Right. A good example of this is, you know, when you think of like our early intelligence agencies, who built them? They were, you know, the, the kind of patrician class that went to Princeton and Yale and, you know, they graduated. It was these young men who said, we have to serve our country. Uh, and but it was a class of people that now, when you look at the same families, the same types of people going to Princeton and you know, where are they going? They go to Wall Street. They go to Wall Street for two years and they go to private equity. If they're lucky, they get into venture capital, you know, or they build a company. And, and it's it's there's no pressure anymore on public service. And I think there's a, a reason for that. I, you know, a lot of people point to 1971 as this year where things changed. I think mm-hmm. there's like two major changes that happened. One is that we went from becoming a collectivist society that was worried about existential threats, that was worried about sort of community. And we became what, what you know, has been called like the psychological man, where we became very inward focused. It's like, that's when sort of the mental health, you know, kind of initiative started happening. That's when people started really focusing on these ideas of finding yourself. In California, that's when Esalen was built, where it's, you know, let's all get together and talk about who we are as people. And it became this movement from looking out at what does our country mean or what does the world mean and looking inward at who am I? That was sort of a novel concept, I think, in the 70s. And then you combine that with what I think happened in 1973 was that we, we ended the draft. Uh, and there was just this bifurcation in American society where if you are part of one class of people, you no longer have to serve your country next to someone who's different from you, next to someone who grew up on a farm who didn't have the opportunities that you did to go to college. And so I think there was this huge bifurcation in American society where culture encouraged people to focus on themselves and financialization encouraged people to make as much money as possible. And then we asked our elites not to go serve their country is what, you know, what happened during the Cold War, where, where even Kennedy was saying, ask not what your country can do for you. We asked our elites to go into banking and to go into to, to making money for themselves. And we gave them that excuse. You no longer have to serve your country. 
And so I think all of those things sort of happening at the 70s in the same time led to a culture where, you know, it's changed sort of how people view public service and even how they view what what Washington is supposed to be and and what government is supposed to be. What's so interesting is this, not, I don't want to even say critique because there's a plus and a minus to this because the 50s, let's just leave race aside for a second, are stultifying. I don't think anyone on this chat, any anyone who's in our audience wants to go back to the man in the gray flannel suit. You clock yeah. in, you clock out. That that was what baby boomer culture was responding to. Okay. And it's easy just to vilify that, but I understand where it came from. But at the same time, so much of Silicon Valley does come from the same cultural firmament that you're talking about, right? That's that's the whole earth catalog. Like those are the people that are inspiring Steve Jobs, the people who are basically pushing back against the IBA, the IBMs of the world. So how do you how do you just think about everything you're saying from a Silicon Valley perspective? Because there's a certain libertarian ethos that says that focus on the individual, that's decentralization. That's pushing back against wearing that, you know, black dress pants with your, you know, white short sleeves and your skinny tie that no one actually really likes. So how do you just think about everything you're saying from a Silicon Valley perspective? And how do your peers who don't come from a DC or civic focused area think of what you're saying? So it's interesting because I think from the outside, it looks like sort of a libertarian philosophy because it's very anti-status quo, you know, it, it, but, but I actually think it's actually very communal uh, to build a company. Uh, the hardest thing about building a company is not the idea. It's not the business model. It is getting people to work together effectively. Like it is the ultimate leadership task. I feel like 90% of my job, everyone thinks that being an investor is, is related to numbers. It's related to understanding business models. It's actually just like working with people. It, it's it's very much trying to get people to work together in an effective way. And so that I would actually say that what what building a startup is is actually probably the like, the only place you can go in America right now to have that sort of communal presence of of serving an idea like bigger than yourself. Yes, you can do it in Washington, but it's frustrating, you know. And and I think that's what I hear from so many people who work in bureaucracy is like, okay, you you know, I I came to D.C. very long time ago, very wide eyed, very idealistic, wanting to work in politics. And the frustration of just not being able to get anything done, I think, is what leads good people to say, I no longer believe in government. Uh, So that might be somewhat, uh, you know, you could call it libertarian, you could just call it disillusionment. But I do think that those people um, often are coming and saying, I'm going to solve this civic problem with my friends, with people I want to work with, and I'm going to do it in a way where we can actually get things done. Um, And I don't know that that's libertarian. I think it's just more pragmatic. It's like the most pragmatic solution to solving problems right now is raising capital and and starting a business. And so in the long run, is this the solution? Because I'm just not sure. Look, I love SpaceX. I'm a huge fan of what Elon Musk is doing. I'm a huge fan of Andrew Palantir, all these things. But they solve discrete problems within sub-agencies at the end of the day. It was not a revolution in terms of the way that our bureaucracy functions. And at the end of the day, if we actually want to you know, fix government, then the government actually does eventually have to do some work. So you spent a long time here. Um, we had a funny moment on the podcast. One of our interns was like, I'm just really excited to move to D.C. and meet people who are really passionate about doing things. And I was like, oh, I've lived here for 10 years, so please introduce them to me uh, whenever, whenever you get here. I would, Sorry, love, I would love to meet those people <laughs> yeah. um, who are really, really passionate about doing stuff and not getting their name in Politico playbook, which I still think is the lamest thing ever. <laughs> Um, anyway, so at the end of the day, government does actually need to work. So, and you know, no disrespect or whatever to the private sector. I think they're doing amazing work. 
given now that you've had experience in both, what could Washington learn from Silicon Valley? And then maybe what could Silicon Valley learn from Washington? So I love this question. I've thought about it a lot. So I think I think Silicon Valley is very good at the micro. Washington's very good at the macro. So your point, like, is it a solution to have a shadow capital that's solving all of the problems because the actual government doesn't like to solve problems? No, that, that is not a, yeah, like, that's not a long-term solution. But what I think is like the people who go to Washington are very good at macro 30 year, like, let's think of, of you know, big picture ideas. The people who go to Silicon Valley, a lot of them like have big, big picture thinking, but it's like, it is a day, it's like an hour by hour grind. It's like, you've got to solve this tiny, tiny problem on day one. And then on day five, it's like, okay, there's another problem. How do we set up these systems? And it's like, it's such a micro way of thinking that it's just two different types of personalities. And I think that you need both. You need the people who are sort of seeing the the 30,000 foot view in Washington and saying, actually, like, maybe we can solve part of the education crisis with one of these companies, but there's this whole other thing that's going to happen in 10 years. And we need to talk about that now. We need to debate it. We need our constituents to vote on it. Like that is like a certain type of person. Often it's like a legal mind. Like there are even different types of practices that I think work well in Washington. The engineering mindset in Silicon Valley is there is a problem that if we don't solve it in a year and that is getting a vaccine, like it, like getting enough PPE, like like these, these very acute problems that are so time sensitive, Silicon Valley is very good at that. And I don't think that should be in the domain of Washington. And sometimes Washington wants it to be in their domain. I think engineers are very good at solving very acute, very specific problems that then grow and scale. And there are some big picture th- thinkers and, and they're gonna build the biggest companies, but we need people who are very focused on solving problems effectively, quickly, and, 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 and as cheaply as possible too. And, and that's where I think Silicon Valley should be brought more into this discussion of how government yeah. and, and Silicon Valley can work together. Mm-hmm. Something that I also enjoyed because Sagar and I are both huge fans of this movie was your articulation of why the social network meant so much to 2010s people who were probably bored at their job at a trading desk or were going to a traditional MBA program and said, hey, I might not be able to code. I might not have thought of this as the thing, but I think this is now the thing and they watched that movie. But as you joked earlier, and I know this is a stereotype, so this isn't true for every single person. So no apologies if I offend anyone, but a lot of those people went and then built ad tech, right? They saw the thing and then the thing was that they were gonna optimize social media screen time. Yeah. That narrative is clearly no longer the thing. Yeah. The founding ideas there, you know, Mark Andreessen has had some good essays about it's time to build. And once again, the part that really excites me about tech is what you're saying of if you see something in the world, this is the means to actually address it. That's very optimistic. So can you tell us about what are folks who are listening to this and are coming out to SV, which is broader than the Bay Area, right? So for example, you're in Miami now. So there's actually a big spread here. (laughs) I couldn't be further from San Francisco, which is a whole other topic we can get into. (laughs) Yeah. And and just, just, but what, what are people who are going out there now doing? Because I don't want us to do it. The the audience advocate side of me is saying, Hey, let's not just say this is all awesome. And then a bunch of people just go and work on ad tech. So what, what are they doing? No offense to our ad tech friends. We love YouTube and the (laughs) stuff we get. Yes, please. YouTube. 
Love so, so I, I love the way you originally framed the question because I got a lot of pushback on my social network uh, piece where people said this is absurd that there was some like I made the argument that in 2010 things really shifted for Silicon Valley that it was no longer sort of weirdo engineers working on like infrastructure problems that like it led to a lot of people who never thought about tech to think okay maybe I should work in tech and to your point like those people came out maybe wide-eyed idealistic saw the social network were like I'm gonna you know build something great and they ended up working at Facebook and you know what I think is happening now is Silicon Valley is no it's both the culture and the counterculture it's like you know the Bitcoin people that are you know seen as like really off and really weird but it's also like business school students like the people who who again like used to go into to Wall Street they used to you know do what you know the kind of tried and true path and like now they're coming to Silicon Valley and say I want to build something but they have a different ethos so it's not um, you know just the nerds trying to build things for themselves it's people going to get a policy degree and saying I'm going to come build something but I'm going to build what I know and I know policy. So I think what has happened with technology is that it's no longer like I work in tech, like tech is no longer an industry. It's like I work and I, I have to use tech. I like, you know, interact with tech. And I think, it, you know, in, in a decade or so, we're probably not even going to call the technology industry. Like the, the changes that have happened is that every company has become a tech company. So in some ways, I think that's really good because it's just, it's just tech is then a means, you know, a means to an end to solve big problems. Uh, but what I think has happened and what I do think happened like in, you know, the early like 2010 and the early two, you know, 2010s was like a lot of people who never considered working in tech are now focused on using technology as a means to an end in order to solve policy goals. Um, which yeah. is why you see so many people in Washington coming out here. And a quick thing that I just want to say, because I appreciate you pointing out that people push back on the piece. I think people, I think the people who would push back are, like you said, kind of engineer types who it always really appealed to. Because for me, and you even point this out in the piece, the social network isn't literally about the facts, right? Like Mark Zuckerberg yeah. didn't launch Facebook because of a non-existent, like fictionalized girlfriend. He launched it for a variety of other reasons, which we'll get into in a different episode that's coming up. But at the end of the day, just this idea of starting something. I mean, Sagar, like we could have done the realignment as a nonprofit. We yeah. could have said, "Hey, like we're gonna about raise, it. we're we're gonna raise money." You could take breaking points to say, "Hey, like we're gonna go to big foundations and build the future of news that way." But we're we're on Substack. We're using yeah. Supercast. We're doing this on YouTube. Like we care about revenue. Like we're. we're yeah. I, I think that that is, and like you said, we're effectively kind of running a tech company, but it's also a podcast and a YouTube channel. And we're thinking all these different decisions. Sagar, like you know, this breaking points. But I think that the ethos. I, I just you really you really captured that, so you don't you don't need like an ego boost, but I, I just want to say like I think mean, that's what that's what was important in that piece. Well, you're pointing out a whole other trend that that I'm really thinking about. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Where it it does feel like it's never been easier for people to make money online. Like yeah. I see so many people. Be, like, I mean, there's the whole movement of the creator economy, which you're part of, but you know, people having Shopify stores and all of these things. But net, but at the same time, you look at the movement of socialism that sort of happened among young people. And it's like young people have never been more aware of how they can make money, but they also have this sort of kind of anti-capitalist bent, which I think is a very interesting paradox that's happening right now in the culture where, you know, like to your point, like any young person can build something and, you know, when people are thinking about it, they've seen these movies, they've seen kind of the mood pieces of how cool it is to be a founder or how cool it is to run your own business. And yet there's this push against that ethos. And it's the, sometimes it's the same people. Sometimes it's like the people who are investors are also sort of pushing the socialist narrative. So I think it's like very interesting that there's sort of this bridge between the two worlds. 
it's true. It has never been easier. That being said, it's winner take all. And so like, yeah. you know, like I work and, you know, I just launched my business breaking point. It's just been very successful. I've been very happy. I know a lot of people who have said something along the lines of, man, I saw what you did and I think I'm going to leave my stable job and try it. And I'm just like, you know, you probably shouldn't like, yeah. no, like no offense, but like, I see your numbers. You don't have enough. I mean, the, the rule of the internet is that three to five or whatever percent of your people will pay to subscribe. If you're clocking 1500 views, I mean, dude, you need to pay a mortgage. You know, yeah. so like I can see it as, look, I think that the anti-capitalist trend and more is more about stability and applying it across the board, yeah. because the truth is, is that in this new, all the tools are there. And I would, I literally could not launch my business without tech. Supercast is my subscription company. YouTube is my video hosting company. And uh, Stripe is my payment processor in terms of my merchant. All three of those things are companies that I believe were launched in the last decade. And two of them, well, I guess YouTube, 2006, so whatever. But the two the, the two which are most critical in terms of me being able to collect subscription revenue, deliver my product via MailChimp, another you know tech cut. These are all brand new companies in the last 20 years. It's true. It would be impossible. That being said, the tools exist for people like me who, yeah. I mean, if you were to look at a bell curve or whatever, probably in the extreme end of the distribution, I think it probably comes more to the center of like, okay, you know, like I want to be able to make a stable job and not have to worry. That's where I think the bottom has fallen out for a lot of young people. Marshall, you seem like you have some. Yeah, yeah I want to, I just want, I just want to build on that because the problem, I think, cause I think about this a lot too, because like you said, it's actually shocking the number of possibilities that the three of us have, you know, you're, you're, you're a really excellent writer. Sagar and I are like performing and speaking. There's literally billions of dollars in capital. It's getting thrown at companies and ideas that exist to help us just fully maximize ourselves. But there's also just people who want to be normal. And if we're going yeah. back to the good part of the fifties and sixties and seventies, and this is where this gets complicated because it's not capitalism's fault that housing in San Francisco is expensive. There's really terrible policies that are imposed by people that make it so it's hard to build new housing. There, are, There's rent, there's all these different things. So it's a misnomer to blame capitalism. But what I think people are really saying is they're just attacking the status quo. And the other thing that people would like is, and I definitely feel this, most people don't want to have to perform on YouTube three to five times a week in order to feel stable. People yeah. would like to, there's, there's a lot of people in the audience who I think are drawn to socialism because I think that people, I think that I'm going to go on a bit of a tangent because Catherine, I'm, I'm just exciting. And, and this is helping me understand things better. What I think is helpful about your perspective is that because you're in broader Silicon Valley, you can attack the status quo while still being, pro-capitalism by still being coming from that traditional perspective. But in Washington, there's a lot of establishment type figures that are <laughs> invested in that status quo and therefore can't make that same, can't make the same critique. Yeah. Um, so I think what I would say here is that a lot of people just wish they could live in a country where they could not have to go to college, but they don't have to learn to code. They yeah. don't have to go to, you know, do this, this or that, but they could get a stable job and, and get a mortgage and yeah, people don't have absolutely. that. 
Absolutely. No. And, and I'm not saying I'm not saying that. I mean, that that is a whole other separate issue that I think is incredibly important to talk about. I'm talking more about like the young people where to your point, like in 2010, people were like just discovering tech. And it's like, oh, wow, there's this like Mark Zuckerberg figure and he built something in his dorm room and it, to where it is now, where it's like you don't have to be Mark Zuckerberg. You don't have to come out to Silicon Valley and, you know, build the next trillion dollar company. You could actually just build something in your house. Like, you know, I, th I think of like how many people are just podcasting from their rooms. Like, like it, it's a different type of model. It's actually more of a, what I would call a small business model um, that could actually be much more effective for most Americans than sort of the 10 years ago model, which is you have to be a wonder kid genius uh, with an idea, know how to code uh, and, and be, you know, just like ruthlessly focused on building a multi-billion dollar company. I think what's great about what's happened in technology now is it's never been easier to start something small and to start something that's actually like for your niche audience. And, and, and that I think is exciting because that actually is going to help more people. Uh, you know, there's, there's not that many Mark Zuckerbergs and I don't think there should be that many Mark Zuckerbergs, but the idea that we now have platforms that allow people who are just normal people uh, to make some sort of living, whether it's a Shopify store, uh, whether it's selling on eBay, you know, which is kind of the analog, but like, you know, these, these sort of platforms that allow people to have normal businesses, but online, I think are really interesting and, and, and are probably more akin to what we're talking about, about people having a normal life. I'm not saying 100%. everyone should be a TikTok yeah. star. <laughs> Please yeah, no. I completely agree with you. I completely agree with you on that front. It, it has never been easier in that respect. I think my last question here um, for you focuses on your own background. Um, it's really interesting been talking to you because you clearly come from DC, like understand dynamics and aspects, which have met some tech guys i'm like man you have no idea what the hell is going on over here in turn like why doesn't the government just do this i'm just like do you have a you know i'll give you some books like yeah. there's a lot of reading that you know presupposes the question before it even starts so just tell us your own story you worked here in dc why'd you leave what you get into and now you're in miami so that's what three different very interesting points yeah very very different but but i'd say like i I am very sympathetic and, and I feel like sometimes I harp way too much on the, like, if, if you're a Washingtonian, you probably feel like I'm being like horrible to Washingtonians. And it's not because I, like, I actually think of myself as a Washingtonian. That's where I came of age. Like I, I went to school in DC, uh, worked at the Washington Post, like very much wanted to work in government. And what I think is really interesting about my story is like, I, I left because I had to. I was not someone that was like, oh, this tech, you know, this tech thing is going to be huge. I mean, I was literally about to be fired from the Washington Post. It was right before Jeff Bezos bought the paper and it was the worst time in media. There were cakings every week, which a caking, I mean, it's like a term that everyone in, in, in the Post knows now, mm -hmm. but it, it's, it was sort of like the funeral for the people they were firing or the people that were taking the buyout. It's like, okay, sorry, you, you've given your 20 years. It's great, but we can't afford you. And I knew that that, I mean, I was making no money. Uh, there was no money to pay even the young people who were working seven days a week. And my editor actually pulled me aside and was like, you know, you're a great writer, but you're not going to have a future here. You need to figure out a, a plan B. And so my plan B was I had a, a friend whose, whose husband was in the Navy. He had just gotten into Stanford Business School. And he literally said to me, he said, uh, they take people who know nothing about business. You would clearly fit in there. Like they, they have like a 5% of the class of just people who are random. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll throw the Hail Mary and see what happens. And I, I was very blessed and I was able to get in last minute. Uh, and it changed my life. And it, But what changed my life was this moving from a culture of no where I was so used to it. And you probably know this in Washington, oh, so wait your well. turn, wait your turn. 
work under someone, you are staff, and then maybe you'll be able to work your way up. Yeah. At the Washington Post, it was you give 20 years and then maybe you get your dream job you know, as a foreign correspondent, but everyone is in front of you in line. So talent matters, but they're talented too. And it was this, it was this idea of scarcity. Everything is zero sum. To an idea when you move to Silicon Valley, there's limitless companies that can be built. There are limitless opportunities. And everyone has this idea that you may be their next meal ticket. So everyone is trying to help each other. And it, so it's, it's partially out of the goodness of people's heart. And it's partially because people are wanting to be on the next big rocket ship. And so that kind of moving from scarcity to abundance was the, the biggest change and the biggest gift in my life. Because then it was, okay, if I work harder than everyone else, if I meet the right people, if I get a couple lucky breaks, things might work for me. And I feel like that's the culture that, that I'm hoping becomes the culture of America. And you're sort of seeing this where it's not just in Silicon Valley anymore. Like the reason I'm in Miami is because I want Miami to be like this too. I want, you know, Austin to be like this. I want Washington DC to ultimately be like this. Although I think it might be the last. It, <laughs> the it last will be the last. Pages. It will be the very last. Yeah. But, but I want, I want this culture of abundance of anything is possible if you work really hard and people will take breaks on you. I, I believe that it doesn't have to be just limited to a place in Northern California. It can be anywhere. And the more of us that can leave the Valley and take this to second cities across America, I think the more common it will be to have these big businesses built in places like Columbus, Ohio, or, or places like, you know, like Las Vegas or, or places that just like don't have these industries. And, and that's what I'm most excited about. And my last quick thing, we focus so much on the defense part of your portfolio. So just it'd be great for you to leave everyone with the, I think there's three or four other areas that you're interested in the in terms of the broad civic tech portfolio. So we just give, to get a good last recitation of what those are. Certainly. So places like I invest in places where, you know, government historically has operated, but tech can help solve the problem. So it's everything from aerospace and defense, as you mentioned, but education, transportation, uh, public safety is an area we're spending a lot of time. And then, of course, mm -hmm. infrastructure, uh, which I think infrastructure is probably the broadest category, but there's a lot of you know software and hardware solutions that can be built to help solve infrastructure problems. So uh, there's a lot of companies that I think fall under, you know, what does it mean to live in a, a fruitful civic society that helps all people? So if anyone's building anything for, for those important issues, uh, I'd always love to hear about it. Awesome. Catherine, where can people find your Substack and everything about you? Sure. So I, I write at boil.substack.com. Uh, I'm on uh, Twitter. I'm on Clubhouse's at Catherine. Uh, I, I'm, I'm pretty easy to find. <laughs> awesome. Well, all that will be down in there in the show notes. We really appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much, Catherine. Thanks for listening to the episode, guys. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or share it with anybody else. And have a great 4th of July weekend. We love all of you. Special thank you to this Lincoln Network for sponsoring this podcast. And we will see you all next week.